0: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Dan Altman, who is at the forefront of football's data revolution. Dan is founder of North Area Analytics and Smarter Scout, bringing data to football fans all over the world. Furthermore, Dan is also co-founder of NYK Capital, specializing in private equity investment in sports. Dan, welcome to the
1: show. Thanks, Connor. Great to be with you.
0: And um, Dan, could you just begin by telling everyone a bit more about this large decentralized platform, which is Smarter Scout, bringing football data to the masses of fans all over the world?
1: Sure, uh, you know, I've worked in football for many years now um, with clubs in the Premier League and other competitions around the world. And I really got the feeling that the penetration of analytics into the football industry at large would be helped if lots of people had access to it and they could really understand how it worked. So Smarter Scout is an attempt to give as many people as possible access to advanced analytics for football and also an explanation of how all the metrics work so that they can really understand what's inside the black box and uh, start to trust those things for interpretation of the matches that they see on video and, and live in the stadium, hopefully not too long from now. Uh, You know, the idea was to provide a service that was free to as many people as possible. And and indeed, we have close to 15,000 users right now, Uh, but also a higher level paid service for professional users like clubs. And uh, we do have uh, clubs from the Premier League, Bundesliga, Serie A, uh, competitions all over the world. And indeed, we have 48 competitions represented on the site. So you'd expect interest from most of those, uh, as well as football agencies and media that are using the paid tiers of our service. So uh, we're really trying to do two things at once. One is to sort of liberate the world of advanced football analytics. And the other is to provide a lightweight, always on 24 seven service to professional clients.
0: Well, and of course we've seen in the past how the likes of Football Manager, Fantasy Premier League and Football Index have really popularized statistics among a growing educated football fan base you spoke just briefly there about your aim is to liberate the world of football analytics. How has Smarter Scout done so?
1: Well, Smarter Scout has allowed lots of people from just about anywhere to dip their toe into this world at no cost at all. They just have to have an internet connection. Uh, you know, they can read about the metrics that we use they can play with them they can conduct queries on our database Uh, they can look at our data visualizations and hopefully some of them are inspired to come up with their own content as a result you know every day on social media we see people using uh, views from our site uh, data from our site to try and talk about players and clubs that they're that they support and that they're interested in um, some of them are using it as a way to get into football journalism, to interpret some of this stuff, and it enriches their content. So, so we're very glad, you know, we, we really want this sort of thing to become part of the lingua franca of global football. And the only way to do that is to make it available to a broad audience.
0: Well, and, I mean, in your past life, Dan, you would have received a PhD in economics from Harvard, you worked as an advisor for the British government, and you were a columnist in New York Times. I mean, what brought you into football?
1: Well, my training was in economics and I did 15 years of different jobs in economics. As you said, Um, I was in academics, I was in consulting and journalism and media, and I felt like I kept on writing the same things over and over again. You know, every economic cycle, you'd have the same kinds of stories. and, and, And the concerns that I had, which were most pressing, things like, the reduction in bargaining power for workers and increasing wealth inequality, especially in the United States, uh, the effects of globalization and, and technological change. I didn't think that the things that I was writing were really making much difference. You know, I, these were to me big important problems, and I felt like I was kind of blowing in the wind when I was writing these things. So maybe I was a little bit frustrated and ready to try something new. Um, of course, I always loved football since I started playing as a teenager myself, and. Uh, I really wanted to see if I could get some interesting insights out of football data. So I bought some data from Opta back in uh, 2013 and started to write about it on some sites that would take my articles for free. Uh, and pretty soon I was able to get some consulting clients and get this whole thing off the ground.
0: And back in 2013, obviously we're going back to an age before expected goals even. How were your opinions and viewpoints initially received by the public?
1: Well, you know, there there were, I think, two axes to interpret that. Um, Expected goals probably were around in 2013 in various forms. These things didn't always have the same names that we use today, but I think people were already looking at things like that. Um, But they weren't necessarily in the common parlance. Uh, some of the things that were would have been uh, some of the metrics borrowed from ice hockey, like uh, total shot ratio, uh, stuff like that. And to me, those metrics didn't form a part of a model of the game. I really felt that if you wanted to assign a value to every action in a football match, you had to fit them into a mathematical model of the whole game that would translate actions into goals and goals into wins and wins into points. Um, And so uh my attempt was to kind of come up with that model and uh by doing that i was also sort of demonstrating that some of these other metrics wouldn't fit into a model and of course that resulted in a little bit of friction uh but i think that today the the use of models like that is pretty standard you know the one category of models looks at how shots are created and tries to assess each shot's value using expected goals and then you assess the involvement of players and the moves that led to that shot on both sides of the ball. And then the other category are what I call ball progression. That's what I called it when I first lectured about it at the OptiPro Forum back in 2015. Now it takes other names like possession value or expected threat, things like that. But it's all kind of the same thing. It's all about what happens when the location and situation of the ball change. How much How much does that increase or decrease the chance of scoring? So. You know, I think that, that this change has really happened from looking at some of these simple metrics to the model-based metrics. The other axis I would say was, as I started to take on consulting clients and, and become sort of professional about it, I think there was a tension between people who kind of did it as hobbyists and those of us who wanted to do it professionally. Uh, and indeed quite a few of the hobbyists did turn into professionals within that period. Uh, and, and that's natural, you know, people who are doing something for fun don't necessarily want to argue about their work, or, or, or critique it, or see how it performs relative to somebody else's work, um, because that just induces anxiety, and doesn't make it fun anymore, and I probably pushed a little too hard, you know, I, I'm, I, I was coming out of the world of uh, financial journalism, and before that, academic seminars, and people in those situations, um, they kind of want to Cut to the chase all the time, and they push pretty hard, and they're not afraid to criticize others. And 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 maybe I, I did a bit too much of that, um, rubbed people some some people the wrong way. Um, I like to think that I've mellowed out a bit since then. But you know, it was a difficult time because um, my ideas were challenging the status quo, and I was also trying to make a living for them. So I think I felt like I was under a, a good deal of pressure as well.
0: I think a key point what you brought brought up earlier on, Dan, was. That ability to open up the black box, and I think what you've mentioned in previous podcasts before and in interviews was there is a bit of a disparity between what you can do and what you can implement. You've spoken there how over time you've mellowed from 20 from an initial foray into the football analytics scene in 2013. Are you surprised to see the growth within this little niche in the game over the past eight years? We've gone from merely being presented with these descriptive analytics to more predictive models of the game. And you've spoken about EPV, the great work done by Heavy Fernandez too at the Bears Innovational. Are you surprised by the speed of this rapid revolution of data in football?
1: Yes, I am a little bit. Uh, You know, this kind of progress took decades in other sports, especially American sports, Uh, even sports that were very statistics heavy from the start, like baseball, to come to this sort of advanced level where people with PhDs in quantitative sciences were at the heart of the analytical movement. It, it took quite a while and it has taken much less time, I think, in football. Uh, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is you have ownership groups who are involved in other sports and for them it's just, it's a, it's, it's a natural thing to involve analytics in what they're doing uh, in fact, they expect some of that because analytics can lead to a certain degree of accountability. Um, but I think it's also the case that our whole world is becoming more analytically intensive. Uh, if you just look at job ads on a major job site, there are tons of analytics jobs. Uh, mostly people to do analytics for digital media or analytics for commercial other commercial purposes. But it's just a skill set that has become much more in demand. And so you have more people who are training in analytics and quantitative fields and computer science. Um, so it, it's becoming part of every industry and, and it's happening very quickly. So it's kind of natural that it should happen in football as well. Of course, it hasn't happened in every league. You know, if you go to Argentina, for example, they're just kind of getting started in this area. And, and you know, in, in Mexico, they've had basic stats for quite a while, but advanced stats are something fairly new. And uh, if you go below the sort of, top clubs in Spain or Italy, uh, you won't find that much of it either, except if you've got a very forward-looking ownership group or executive group. So I I am a bit surprised by that. Uh, And uh, in a way it's kind of reassuring because you would have thought that this was the bastion of tradition in the sporting world. And and yet um, it's become sufficiently au courant that you now see expected goals and, and even more complicated stats being referenced in the popular media.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, and then not too long after your initial foray into football analytics, then you get your first break, major break, so to speak, at City Football Group. In terms of multi-club ownership networks, you've also worked for Kaplan and Levine at DC United and Swansea City. How did the roles and responsibilities differ for yourself between both ownership groups?
1: Yeah, at City Football Group, I was a consultant and I was working with the insights group there, which was sort of like a think tank inside the group uh, to develop ideas that they could roll out through the group. And they were interested in things like style of play and and where to get the best advantage in different situations and and how to compare players across different leagues, things like that. Um, Kind of high level topics that they felt could benefit more than one club. And that was fascinating for me, especially when we were able to try and figure out what the differences were between the leagues and even between men's and women's football, um, if there were things that were commonalities there. Um, I, I think it was really valuable because a lot of people think of leagues and they sort of rank them top to bottom. Uh, but actually there are so many different aspects that a league might be stronger in defending, but weaker in attacking, stuff like that. You might have more time on the ball, less time on the ball. Defenders might be more or less aggressive. There are just so many facets to it. And, and that's kind of why today on Smarter Scout, when we adjust our metrics for different leagues so that you can sort of simulate the performance of a player in a different league, we adjust every metric individually because those things can all be different. You know, at Kaplan Levy and sports, I was nominally the head of strategy and advisor to to both of the clubs that they had at the time. And um, it it, it really ranged um, towards uh, the end of my time there. I felt like uh, they they had really put a huge amount of faith in their coaches um, and uh, general manager or, or, or chairman. And there wasn't much room for even the traditional scouting staff to be involved in decisions but there were other moments where i felt like i was almost a surrogate sporting director you know being being asked questions on high level topics to do with player transfers and stuff like that so um maybe because there was no real job description it was a sort of ill-defined role and and that was probably my fault as well but uh but that was a fascinating experience to really be able to learn the business from the inside and um you know between those two things i also had several other consulting gigs with different clubs Um, And it was always different. You know, sometimes you'd just be working with analysts. Sometimes you'd be working directly with sporting director or even the owner. So, um, you know, people wanted to have that uh, analytical component at different stages. What was often missing was the idea of what the decision process really was. You know, could you draw a decision tree to describe how you were going to make different decisions? And, And, you know, just dropping in a little bit of analytics here and there, it wasn't always going to be taken up in the most systematic way.
0: Oh Sure. And I suppose having worked in the Premier League and in the MLS, you know, the roster building in both leagues are obviously different. But would the principles you would adhere by that would guide your decision making, would they differ from both roles? Would they be the same?
1: I think there are always club-specific factors and league-specific factors. You know, I used to have the the old Sports Illustrated chart summarizing the MLS salary cap system pasted on my wall <laughs> because it was so complicated. I sometimes had to refer to it. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there are some things that you always um, will, will have in common. You know, you're, you're always trying to uh, assess what sort of risk the club wants to take and then you know, allow the tolerable risks and reduce the other risks. So, you know, club might be willing to take risks on some young players, but, you know, on the other hand, if the club is going into a January transfer window and they, they don't have much money to spend, you can't afford to take many risks. You want to bring in players who you're pretty sure are going to have an impact. So, you know, things like that you're always going to think about. You're always going to think about succession planning. You're always going to think about Uh, diversification, uh, and you're always going to think about sort of what the ultimate return is going to be for your investments. You know, players pay you a sort of return while they're playing for you, and then you also have the potential for a capital gain or loss when they move on. Um, When you start to think about them as capital assets, not to denigrate them as people at all, obviously, but, but, but they can function in that way as well then you get a sort of more portfolio driven approach to your squad. And I think that the teams that have taken that approach have been very successful. And
0: when you say portfolio driven approach, then in terms of succession planning, how many transfer windows would you guys have planned ahead?
1: Well, the optimal situation, I think is where you have a succession plan that might last for eight to 10 years, which would take you sort of through three cohorts of players. You you might imagine a situation where you're targeting peak age players around age 25 or 26 at a position, but you might have older players around 29 or 30 and young players coming up around 21 or something like that. So you're always guaranteed to have a player who's close to peak age for that position. Um, So you you could have that entire span as part of your succession plan. Um, It's not easy to plan transfer windows eight years in advance because you don't even know which players will be available. So, but if you could plan a, at least let's say two windows in advance, uh, I think you're in decent shape because you will be able to fill the gaps that occur on a sort of urgent basis. And hopefully you'll be working with the same coaching staff during that period. But of course, you know, I think many people would say the optimal situation would be where you have a really strong football philosophy and whichever coaching staff you bring in is going to adhere to that philosophy. And so there shouldn't be too many conflicts about the recruitment
0: and I suppose one huge transfer you were involved in during your time at DC United was, of course, Wayne Rooney's. Now, in football, we have the eye test and we have the numbers test. Anyone who's a football fan, unless you've been living under a rock the past decade or two, knows who Wayne Rooney is and how good he is. Well, from a sheer numerical point of view, how did you manage to convince the hierarchy at DC United to sign him based on just numbers alone.
1: Well, I wasn't the only one who was part of the argument, I should say, but uh, I think that the numbers were a crucial part of making the case for that transfer. Um, You know, there were people who thought, oh, he's over the hill. You look at him playing in the Premier league right now, and he's a little bit behind the pace. Uh, How do you know if he came to DC United to MLS, which is a league that's improving, at least on the attacking part? um, that he'd be able to really be a difference maker. You know, um, people like to talk about whether someone will move the needle. And that's certainly what DC needed because they were in last place, having had to play a lot of their games, uh, on the road and and without their new stadium being ready, they were going to move into the stadium midway through the season. And it was imperative that they fill the stadium. So they needed to have exciting football and they needed a little bit of star power. So, you know, in that kind of situation, obviously, there wouldn't be too many players that you'd be looking at, but um, Rooney looked, from what I could tell in the metrics, like he would be exceptional in the uh, in, in, in Major League Soccer, and there were a couple reasons for this. Um, if you looked back over the past two seasons that he played back in the Premier League, uh, you could see that though so he had some ups and downs on average and, and we did do weighted averages of his stats over time. Uh, he was still performing at a very high level for MLS, especially in attack. You wouldn't necessarily expect him to, to, um, be putting a huge amount of output on both sides of the ball. Though so he did have one notable play where he made an incredible tackle near midfield and launched the ball all the way back towards goal. And, and uh, uh, Luciano Acosta scored an incredible header, but, um, uh, you know, we, we had realistic expectations for him, but we thought certainly in attacking, uh, he was going to be very influential. And it was remarkable because when he came to DC United, we started to track his data there and he was hitting all these numbers exactly as we had projected them for MLS. Uh, And it just goes to show that there are big, important differences between leagues. You know, the the standard in MLS is not the same in various aspects as the Premier League. And you take a player from the Premier League and put them in MLS, they can really make a big difference.
0: Of course. And that's just one superb example. were there any other moments, I suppose, then where was proper just like pinch yourself? Wow, this stuff isn't just, you know, it just doesn't work theoretically. Also, when applied, you know, it works to Were there any other moments like
1: that? Um, You know, there were a couple of moments like that. Um, There was one team I was working with and um, there was a feeling, I think, that uh, the coach was making substitutions a bit too aggressively in the um, second half of matches, you know, trying to win games against opponents that were maybe better than his squad. Um, And sometimes that was leaving his squad exposed. You know, sometimes if you make an aggressive attacking substitution late in the game, you leave yourself open. And if you're playing against a better team, um, then instead of, you know, turning a draw into a win, you might turn it into a loss. And I think that there was a feeling in the club's hierarchy that we needed to get the message across to him that, that he needed to be a bit more careful with the points he had in the bag late in games. And so uh, I did a huge study where I, I I looked at over 10,000 matches in Europe's top five leagues to see what the outcome was after certain types of substitutions so you know we would look uh, at um, home games versus away games you know all the different possible score lines and different times in the second half of matches and say well okay this was the score line it was a home match for this club you know you were in the 65th minute and they made an attacking substitution so they pulled off a midfielder put on an attacker or something like that Um, what was the average change to the points before and after as a result of those substitutions so you might have you know 300 situations where that happened and you could say okay well going into it they were averaging 1.2 points and after they made the substitution they ended the game with 1.1 points or you know before the next substitution they had 1.1 points Um, And and so we could kind of create a cheat sheet that would say, okay, these different situations, these are the subs that seem to make the best difference. And it was kind of a guide, right? Every game is different. You wouldn't always do the same thing. You have players who are injured or fatigued, whatever. But uh, the overall message to the coach was be a bit more conservative with your substitutions. And he started doing that. You know, The the very next match um, was a match that this club really felt they had to win. And they got a goal relatively early in the second half. And the first thing he did was to pull off a striker or, or maybe it was a midfielder, but he pulled a player off and put on a third center back for the first time all season. <laughs> and, and they, yeah, they ended up claiming the three points from that match. And, and it turned out to be a, a start of a good role for that for that club. So, you know, that, that was a victory, not in the recruiting sphere, but more in the tactics sphere. Well, that's
0: tremendous insight. Um, I know previously we spoke about there being a difference between what you can do and what you can actually implement. Towards the end of your time at Swansea City, you shared some gripes or frustrations about the inner workings. And the the antidote to that, Dan, was that you went away and you set up your own investment group to pump money into football. What do you enjoy the most about investing in not only these football but sporting organisations?
1: Well, first, just to correct you, I didn't say anything while I was working for the ownership group of Swansea City. I was- Sorry, sorry, after. My yeah. mouth shut. Uh, um, and, and you know, of course you're still bound by uh, some non-disclosure agreements afterwards. So I, I try to couch everything I say in terms of my opinions and, and, and not discuss anything that actually happened at the clubs. Um, uh, but, um, or at least anonymize it if I do. Um, th- what I would say is, uh, An exciting part of this is trying to find things that work you know um there's the excitement of having an idea and then there's the excitement of building some analytics writing some code to try and measure the situations or outcomes in your idea and then there's the excitement of implementing it and seeing if you can make a difference on the pitch i think it's the same for traditional scouts or coaches, you know, when they they spot a player and they say, wow, this guy's going to go on to be a star, and then the player does, that's exciting for them. When a the coach has an idea on the chalkboard and then sees it on the pitch in training and then sees it in a match succeeding, that's exciting, right? So it's the same sort of thing. Um, we want to see that. And uh, when a club can really punch above its weight, I think that's a good signal that tools like analytics are working. And analytics don't have to be the only tool for that, but you know, so much of football seems to be driven by money when there's a club that can achieve more than its budget might suggest is capable of doing, you know, like Leicester City, for example, back in fifteen sixteen. Uh, I think that's exciting.
0: Yeah, sure. And of course, then we've seen a rise of not only your, your own, but other US private equity firms investing in football, particularly in English and Italian football. Is there any coincidence we've seen this rise of USPE firms in English football, which coincides also with the rise of analytics within the English game?
1: Well, yeah, I think that some of these firms are used to using analytics, either in other sports, as I said before, or or other industries. And the key for them is to really, commit themselves to a rational way of making decisions. You know, you can say we need analytics, but then if you make decisions based on passion, you, know, you might as well throw the analytics out the window. And yet a lot of these owners are buying sports clubs because they're passionate. And so you can't really tell them they have to take all the fun out of it. You know, they, they want to be the one sitting in the big chair and pushing the buttons. Um, so uh, I think when you work for a club like that, you have to Go in with very open eyes that uh, the decisions at the top might be made in a fairly capricious way or a way that doesn't necessarily represent all the work that's been done at a foundational level. But you know, the other reason for this, I think, is that there's such a market for content right now and live sports offer unpar- unparalleled content. So I think these are savvy investors who think, well, you know, if I want to make money in, in a durable way, I've got to own a piece of a content producing enterprise and, and, you certainly get that with football but there are others who just do it for passion you know i mean look at uh, kyle krauss for example at parma in syria uh, i think he wanted to own that team he owned a small team in iowa for a long time i think he wanted to go big he has italian heritage he owns some wineries over there and and i think it's part of the life he wanted to live so you know god bless him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and would you still be of the volition then then that there's still a lot of untapped value in investing in European football?
1: Well, I think that some of these clubs uh, spend money in a way that's not really efficient. So uh, yes, in that sense, there is untapped value. Uh, I think that's why we're involved in it uh, with NYK, because we think that there are clubs that can uh, punch above their weight. As I said, they can go higher up the table. Um, And uh, I think the more clubs are, taken over by people who manage them in a rational way uh the more they're going to succeed and the happier supporters will be as well because they won't see their clubs on the auction block or in bankruptcy proceedings and things like that
0: finally then then is this only the beginning of football state of revolution
1: well i think we're it, it's it's hard to say it's just the beginning i think it it already has been going for a good five or six years you know i think leicester's title really marked it was almost like a coming out party for analytics and football in, in Britain at, at any rate. Of course, you know analytics didn't win them the title, but I think analytics helped them to help to put them in a position where other things, including a bit of luck, could, could push them over the top. But that really got people's attention. And uh, so I think from there, we've been on a pretty fast ride. Um, but what you pointed out earlier is still very relevant. There's still a big gap between what we can do and what we can implement. Uh, so you may have a bunch of PhDs working at your club, but you still have to distill things down to, uh, some hard truths that can be implemented on the training pitch. And the, the more knowledgeable coaches and scouts and even players get about analytics, the easier it's going to be to do that. So I think the the big next stage for us is really an educational stage.
0: Awesome. And then to close, where do you see both yourself and Smarter Scout within the next 10 years?
1: I really don't know how to answer that question. You know, um, we uh, ten years a long time. First of all, but um, you know, we're at a kind of juncture point with Smarter Scout where we could try and go big. We could we could release versions in different languages. We could release an app, things like that. We could add more functionality. Um, but we've also been contacted by a couple of groups that were interested in buying the platform. So, um, yeah, don't know where it's going to be even next year at this point. Um, but uh, hoping for good things and hoping that it can continue to be a part of this movement.
0: Brilliant. Dan, you know, anyways, I'm a huge fan of your work, but should any, any football fan or anyone from any industry wish to reach out to you on social media, where's best to connect?
1: Well, you can follow the Smarter Scout uh, Twitter feed. Um, and if you need specific information, the best thing to do is to email via the website.
0: Fantastic. Brilliant. Dan, thanks for taking the time out. Absolute pleasure speaking with you. Hope to get you on again in the future.
1: Thanks, Connor. Mm -hmm. Great questions, by the way. (laughs) Take care.